I'm pretty sure that Ecclesiastes would have been a musical if it was made today. I mean, you think about art, and this is a work of art. It's a literary work of art. And uh, we don't write, we don't reflect art in the written word today like they did in other cultures. We're more the visual arts. Ecclesiastes expresses, expresses a lot of frustration. Do you find frustration in modern art today? I do. Now, it would be real easy to run to the Rolling Stones and just start out. How's it go? I can't get no satisfaction. Right, exactly. So you know. And I try, and I try. I'm channeling my inner Richard Stomps here, aren't I, for those who've been around a little bit. And I try, and I try, and I can't get any satisfaction. Well, you're going to find, friends, that an enormous amount of uh, songs have found inspiration in the book of Ecclesiastes as we go through the book. You're going to find that this has been the inspiration for a lot of art. But even deeper in every musical, there's a song that seems to depict the emptiness of human experience. How frustrated, how unsatisfied we feel at times. Considered, I dream a dream. I dreamed a dream from Les Mis. And this great sad line in the song, life has killed the dream I dreamed. More contemporarily, um, the song Ginny Lynn sang, the character in The Greatest Showman, never enough. Never, never, never enough. Or more even recently um, from the musical Hamilton, I will never be satisfied. You will never be satisfied. I tried to test this theory Monday night at the uh, leadership team meeting. I asked my brother, Greg Sethman. I, I pitched this to him. And I said, every musical has a... He did, he's like, oh man, I made it in the sermon again. Every musical has this cathartic moment. And he says, well, what about Greece? Without missing a boat. I said, beauty school dropout. <laughs> I was like, it's there. Or maybe stranded at the drive-in. I don't know. But you see, sorry, throughout history... Now, comedy was the wrong time for what I want to say here. So come back. The arts have always reflected the feelings of the culture. And though they wouldn't use this expression, the arts reflect the theology of the current age. Their view of life and God and his insertion or absence. Ecclesiastes is a poetic wisdom book. Listen to this. It is intent on reflecting our feelings back to us through the lens of our understanding of life. It's uncomfortable at times. It's raw at times. But let's jump in and see what we can learn this morning. To put us in context with the book, we just started last week, chapter 1, 1 through 11. What did we learn last week? There was a rhetorical question. What does a man gain by all the toil in which he toils under the sun. And that word gains a financial word. It's the word profit. It means net profit. I mean, anytime you do something, there's some effort exerted to get something. And I've learned, being uh, owning my own company at different times, that sometimes you do a lot of work, and when you're all done, you look around and you have less than you started. <laughs> what was left over? Not how much did you make, but what was left over? What was the profit? And Solomon's Conclusion that he just declares to us right up front, emptiness, meaningless, nothing you can do will have any profit. 
And Pastor Brian did a great job going through these uh, uh, very graphic pictures. A generation goes and a generation comes. The sun keeps circling. The wind keeps blowing. All the streams flow to the sea. The sea is not empty. We are a tiny little cog in an overwhelmingly big machine and we can't make any difference at all. How crazy you are to think you can make a difference, Solomon says, in the face of such. It's like the Matrix. Like you're just this tiny little nothing. And you have no control. Not only is life meaningless, but we, Brian pointed out to us, are insatiably desiring meaning. He uses those three expressions. The mouth um, utters, the man can't speak it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear is not satisfied with hearing. And you can give me all you want, friends. And it's never enough. We call it the law of diminishing returns. Illustrated for you ladies by a new dress that is very meaningful in week one and then finds itself in the back of the closet. I mean, it provided you joy and fun and then I need another one. Or us guys, don't you eat in my new car. Until six months later, I'm throwing soda down there and stepping on it. And because things, we, we just are the law of diminishing returns. What satisfied us today, we develop a tolerance to, and it moves on. And in conclusion, uh, verse 11 from last week, there's no remembrance of former things. And, and you, you're so insignificant, no one remembers you. No one's going to, no one, no one, no, sorry. If life doesn't have any profit, and if none of us are ever satisfied with life, And if no one will be remembered, then what is the point? What's the meaning of life? What is the significance? It comes out of the gate so dark, so pessimistic. And Solomon must have not been personally comfortable with just sharing his initial observations, or maybe he felt the need to demonstrate that he was telling the truth. So he embarks this morning in these few verses on a comprehensive research project in order to search deeper This morning we're going to consider four aspects of what I would consider Solomon's research project. We're going to look at his credibility and ability to conduct such an audacious investigation. It'd be important to know the guy who's doing the study, right? Can you trust him? Number two, he's going to declare his intent. Put out the scope of the project. This is what I'm trying to do. Sounds like a school project, doesn't it, Eric? <laughs> this is what you do. This is the guy. This is the decoration of the tent. Number three, he's going to post his initial findings, the results of his project, the lab data, if you will. He's going to show his work. Don't you hate it when they make you do that in school? And lastly, he's going to give us a summary, his conclusion. He will review his findings, give us his takeaways. And just so you know, we're not really done with this personal investigation just today. This research project is going to take several sermons. Next week, Pastor Greg will share with us another facet of the journey when Solomon tries to find meaning in personal pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. He will continue this research project. It's going to go until the end of chapter 2, but for this morning, we'll just stay in our assigned portion of the book. And let me tell you the main point of the sermon this morning. Solomon begins his research project to find the meaning of life, the search for significance. And Solomon begins to share his personal testimony, 
that he tried everything and nothing was meaningful. Nothing satisfied. Meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. All right, well, let's look at the text this morning just for a moment. If you look at it just uh, from a big picture standpoint, I want to share with you just some grammatical and some introductory things. It divides into two sections, uh, verses 12 through 15, verses 16 through 18. Maybe the most obvious thing you could see if you're looking at your scripture journal or your copy of the scripture is that both sections end with a proverb. Do you see that? I'm just talking about the technical side of it. Verse 15 is kind of a proverbial summary, and verse 18 is a proverbial summary. If you have an ESV Bible, they're set off as poetry. They're kind of proverbs. They're couplets. Okay, so each section ends with that. Each section begins with Solomon kind of identifying himself. I, the preacher, verse 12, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 16, I said in my heart, that always reminds me of, I said to myself, self, um, you know, (laughs) he he references that back to, to remind you, he's the preacher, the king. He repeats the phrase, I applied my heart. You see verse 13, I applied my heart to seek and to search out. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know. In verse 14, he says, I have seen. And in verse, the end of verse 15, he says, I perceived. And his conclusion is therefore, so at the end of verse 14, all is vanity and striving after wind. And at the end of verse 17, he says, striving after wind. You see that? This is really simple to look at from just a big picture standpoint and say, oh, it's a little cyclical. It's not entirely redundant. It's like he says the same thing over twice, but he repeats the same type of circular thought there to reach similar conclusions. And so as we go through the text, the reason I pointed this out to you is I'm going to, be ref- I'm going to take them kind of side by side. So when we talk about Solomon's authority and credibility... To do the work, we're going to look at verse 12 and 16 at the same time. You see that? When we look at his summary findings, we're going to look at the two Proverbs at the same time. Kind of there, so that you understand why I'm jumping around in the text. That's just why I wanted you to see that. All right, let's look at the author. His position, his wealth, his reach, his ability. Rhetorical question, could Solomon really have conducted this study in a trustworthy and competent manner? Is this the God we want to listen to? Well... He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Verse 16, he says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. Listen to this statement, friends. Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Is this true? I mean, how smart was Solomon? How wise really was he? Well, we must look at the Word of God to get a little help here. And so we'll look at just a couple of passages. I put them up on the screen so we can read them together quickly and you don't have to run around your Bibles. This is 1 King 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this throne I'm sorry, this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on the throne this day. I got, I got a little wild there with my uh, font size, didn't I? Cut that off for you. Verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. 
Here's Solomon's request. I highlighted it for you. Emphasis is mine. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, listen to the word of God. Wouldn't you love to have God speaking to you, not just the... I mean, it's nice. You know, that's a bad distinction. The word of God is the mouth of God. Uh, But it would be something to have the voice of God, wouldn't it? And to have that kind of dialogue with him. Behold, I do now according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has ever been before you and none like you shall arise after you. Solomon credentialed to do this from the mouth of God. If the Bible is true, then Solomon is wiser than all who came before and any who shall come after. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. Just a little later in the book of 1 Kings 10, I'm sharing this passage with you to use it later. So pay attention to this one pretty good, okay? This is going to come up again at the end of the sermon. Now, when the queen of Sheba, a contemporary of Solomon, a a ruler, uh, heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. It sounds like me in a parenting, a common parenting day and a child coming. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered her at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. He took her breath away. Last one. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. Happy are your men. Boy, I wish my children would say this. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom after they bring their tough questions to me. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now, like I said, this Queen of Sheba story is going to come back up later, which is why I teed it up here so that we could see it again uh, when, when we get to it. But it appears to me, based on the testimony of the Word of God, that Solomon is someone we could trust. In fact, it seems that Solomon is the most trustworthy and capable person to conduct this investigation into the meaning of life, not only because of his wisdom, but he says he's the king over Israel and Jerusalem. And if you know anything about uh, Bible history, you know that under the reign of Solomon, the nation of Israel was at its widest expansion, and that God said he gave Solomon all the riches and long life that he did not ask for. Solomon had both the wisdom and the aptitude and the financial ability 
to conduct this test. Secondly, let's consider Solomon's the declaration of his intent, his task, his investigation. We find it at the beginning of verse 13, the beginning of verse 17. I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom, by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. Let's deal with that expression under heaven again real fast. This is an interesting expression. It's one that shows up 37 times in the book. And the idea here is life apart from God. If God lives above heaven, then as we view life under heaven, apart from God, without inserting God into the equation, this is what life feels like under the sun. Pastor Brian used a nice expression last week. He talked about under the S-U-N and under the S-O-N. Remember that? That we live under the sun. We'd rather live under the sun. (laughs) It's better to live under Jesus. But we know all kinds of people who live apart from God, don't we? And this is the meaning and intent of the book of Ecclesiastes. So he's, his work is to study under heaven. He says, I've applied my heart. The, the heart is the center of the person in the Hebrew language. Like this is him. All, I gave myself. This is not just redundant words. He's to seek and to search out by wisdom. He's expressing two phrases to say, man, I was giving myself to this. I wanted to investigate by wisdom everything that's done under heaven. Woo! (laughs) Do you understand the scope and sequence of the project? Verse 17. It wasn't just enough that he went by wisdom. He reached a point in his study, and we're going to see this in subsequent weeks. I'm not going to comment on it too much, but I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know what else? Verse 17. Madness and folly. He tried it all. And I've tried to get my children to understand that the don't knock it till you try it expression is not always wise. But in this case, Solomon said, I, and we're going to see a little of that next week when Pastor Greg begins to explain the journey of physical pleasure that Solomon took himself on to try to find meaning. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom everything that is done under heaven. Can you imagine the king? Under a time of relative peace in Israel, if you know your Bible history. He was not distracted by wars, political entanglements. It was a time of blessing under the hand of God. And you have a king with all the resources in the world and the most wise and discerning mind. This is Solomon's declaration of his intent. Number three, let's review his initial findings. This will take a little longer. Lots to comment on. In the first half of the passage, in the first series of verses, we find this in the middle of verse 13. He says... It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Wow. (laughs) I'm talking about loaded phrases, friends. (laughs) This is uh, so laden 
with content. It's the first mention of God in the book. There are all kinds of allusions to the Garden of Eden here. You might notice that God does not seem to be mentioned favorably, does he? Let's unpack that just a little bit. It is an unhappy business. Business. What's the synonym for business? Toil. What does a man gain with all the toil in which he toils under the sun? Where's the profit? What's left over? God put man in a garden, didn't he? To work the garden, correct? Before the fall, it was good for man to work. And what did God call that? Was there a descriptive word God used day by day by day in Genesis to describe the work he had given the man to do? It was good. This stands in great contrast. Just like Genesis 2.18 is supposed to stand in great contrast when God gives a, a, a wife to the man. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's not good for man to be alone. That's supposed to stand in contrast. This stands in contrast. It is an unhappy business. That's right, you're making a little bit bit much of that. I don't see that there. That God has given to the children of man. You know what the Hebrew word for man is? Adam. Adam's kids. And this is written that way in the original language. It is an unhappy business that God has given to Adam's kids. To be busy with. Don't you love that? Busy work. (laughs) Nobody likes busy work. (laughs) Keep me busy. Tedious stuff. Just whatever. That sounds like the hamster on the treadmill running, getting nowhere. The sentence is laden with negativity, with biblical contrast, with condescension, with rawness, just like we'd expect Solomon to be writing in the book of Ecclesiastes. Hear it again. It is an unhappy business. That God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Incidentally, I think I said all of that. It's everything that God created was good. This is how people begin to see God when they don't understand the revelation of the Bible. They look around and say things like this. If God is all-powerful, then he certainly can't be good. Or he wouldn't let this stuff happen. And the way that Solomon reflects God here for us, remember his research project? Even though he has the concept of God in his brain, his research project is under the sun. So he's a pagan trying to figure things out. And people who say things like that, if God is all-powerful, then he can't be good. Or he wouldn't let this stuff happen. I would understand things better. Are on that trap where they've lost perspective. And that moves to losing heart. He summarizes in verse 14. Now not his proverbial summary, but he, he, he intensifies. And he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. Under heaven's a similar expression. And behold, all is havel. That's the onomatopoeia. Vanity. 
That's from chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Not vanity smurf, not in the mirror. It's the idea of poof and nothing. It's not Vanity Fair. It's not Glamour Magazine. The word vanity in this context means emptiness, devoid of substance. NIV translates it utterly meaningless. You have to understand that. And then he adds to it. That's not enough that I tell you it's vanity. (laughs) Sounds like enough to me, Solomon. Don't pile on. And a striving after the wind. Or a chasing after the wind. You get Jason up here. You want to have a wind chasing contest? I mean, you can start over here and I'll start over here. Everyone else can judge. That'd be more fun. No one else wants to be invited up. This word striving after the wind has the idea of chasing, feeding, shepherding. When it says striving, it's trying to reflect all of those things. It's like the idea of a shepherd to shepherd the wind. Well, you would chase after the wind if it was... If it was um, straying, you would feed the wind. If it was hungry, you would... uh, It's it's a difficult word to translate. It doesn't matter how you translate it. Can you feed the wind? Can you chase the wind? Can you strive for the wind? I'm no fan of cats, so the metaphorical expression that I would use would be herding cats, is what people say in America today. That's a fool's errand. Remember I talked about songs and the arts and how... Uh, Ecclesiastes is, would very much be a song. I wish my brother Carl was here. Uh, I could get Sam up here, maybe do a little guitar for us. But I remember uh, the words of this band and from a, a band named Kansas. I believe it's from the late 70s or early 80s. I close my eyes only for a moment, and the moment's gone. All my dreams pass before my eyes, a curiosity. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. Same old song. Just a drop of water in an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground that we refuse to see. Dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. I won't make you do it, Jason, but could you get it? You see it first? I mean, oh, oh. I didn't, I didn't get it. Who's got the wind net? What a, what a thing to say, though. I have seen everything under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a chasing after the wind, a striving after the wind. To stay with my uh, parallelism here, verse 17, applied my heart to know wisdom, to know Madison folly. I perceived, that's that parallel to I have seen, that this also is but a striving after wind. So he inserted madness and folly and said, I'm, I'm going to try not to be as logical, I'll be illogical. I'll try, I'm, I'm going to try to find meaning in like, more like nihilistic or uh, fatalistic type philosophies of life. And um, he just reiterates here in a shorter version. He says, it's just a striving after the wind. I'm not so sure I like the fact that Solomon showed his work. How about you? (laughs) And now we come to these two Proverbs. Fourth and lastly, let's take a look at his conclusions, his findings, his summary. Proverb in verse 15. What is crooked 
cannot be made straight. Remember, he's trying to be wise here. He's studying. These are his results. If it's crooked, you can't straighten it out. And what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, this is a reference also back to, it's not, he's making a point, but this idea continues to drive back to chapter 1, verse 3. I can't count what isn't there, what's left over. (laughs) What is lacking can't be counted. There's no profit. There's nothing left over. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. Vexation, agitation, upsetness, angst. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now that one doesn't make much sense to me on the surface, does it? Seems if I get smarter, I get happier, right? He says he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, we'll take a look at a couple of these things together. The first proverb seems to describe the frustration of our work, kind of from the outside. We're trying to do stuff. We're, we're, trying to, we're, 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 we're working at this and we're trying to be smart. And I can't straighten out the crooked stuff and I can't count the stuff that isn't there. Do you feel it? It's more from an outsider's view. We'll talk about it in a minute. The second proverb seems to focus on the effects of futility on our understanding of life and meaning. Man, the, smart, the more I look at stuff, I get more angst. And the more I learn, the sadder I become. This is more of a personal, you feel the difference between the, between the proverbs? Here's where there's a great divergence. It's been pretty similar to this point, but his findings now are kind of similar. Well, there's a couple of uh, observations before we, we move to some final thoughts. Crooked is a metaphor for sin or moral brokenness in wisdom literature. You might think of Proverbs 12.8. A man is commended according to his good sense, but one of a crooked mind is despised. Solomon's trying to figure out, why is this world in a broken state? Now remember, life where? What are the two expressions? Under heaven and under the sun. So I know we know the Bible answers, friends. He's asking them from the perspective of someone who doesn't. And I'm trying to take us through this as darkly as I can before I shed a little light on this so that we understand the way unsaved people think and the way the world works. Do you understand that? The world is perverse because of human sin and the curse. In fact, later in Ecclesiastes, Solomon will say this in chapter 7, I have discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. Seems like he figured some things out. Humanity has gone its own way against God's design. And because of other sin and our own sin, we live in a messed up world. This proverb, the first one, what is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted, tells us we can do nothing to fix the situation ourselves. I visited with a friend. Everyone knows I get a Dr. Pepper in the morning. I go to the same speedway. Talk to my friend Larry almost every morning. He's there this morning. He said, pray for me, man. Last night, one of my family members was shot and killed. And another one's in the hospital. So they're in the parking lot there. Pray for him. And we talk about what's the problem. And I've said this to you before, and Brian has too, and Greg has too. Is it racism? Is it economicism? <laughs> is, is it anyism? 
Would you be reduced to any ism other than sinism and unbeliefism? I hope not. And I don't mean to say, and I try to be fair and fair, I try to be clear here that, yeah, those things are problems, but they're not the root problem. And whatever you think the biggest problem is will subsume in your mind all the other problems. So make sure that you understand what the problem is. Alistair Begg, in the sermon I read this week on this text, said, we are trying to line up the squares of the Rubik's Cube, and we got a few colors missing. It's a fool's errand. It's herding cats. It's chasing the wind. This first proverb Solomon gives us declares to us our inability to fix, tells us there are problems that cannot be fixed, under heaven, do you understand? I keep making that point that under the sun, Solomon gives a second proverb. And it actually says, as I said before, the more you study, the worse you feel. In fact, I could reverse this proverb and give you another more modern proverb in the contrast. Ignorance is. You feel that? You feel that difference there? It's the same sort of thing. The more I know, the more angst and sad I get, so the less I know. Unless I need to know. How does that work, Trey? What do you mean? Well, I just I, I haven't driven down 21st Street too recently, but I used to go to Lakeside Elementary. And I know at the public schools, they teach Darwinianism. Which is a godless theory of the origin of the universe. And the way that we know it is the theory of evolution. That the world just happened. Molecules to man. And and the way it happened was through a process called natural selection. Or the survival of the fittest. Have you heard that? The survival of the fittest. They don't put any of that on the little white sign out front. You know what they put on the white sign out front? Character quality of the week. Kindness. I'm talking about left hand and right hand. How about you? They have no clue what they're... If, if the people who survive are the fittest, why am I being kind to you? The more I study, the more angst I get. It doesn't make any sense. I give you one. We're running out of time here. I, lo- I despise that clock. Um, many of you know I'm a counselor. So I've done some different study, and people say, I want to go study psychology. I'm like, cool. Not really. Um, you going to study Freud, Skinner, Rogers? Who are you going to study? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to study psychology. Oh, well, one says that man is comprised of an id, an ego, and a superego. One says man's a blank slate. One said man is basically good. What do you believe? I don't know. I'm just going to go study psychology. Oh, okay. Well, one says the problem is the conflict between the id and the superego. One says the problem is an environmental failure. One says the problem is that you have social and economic and environmental factors that are hindering your basic good. What do you believe? I don't know. I just want to go study psychology. Uh, Well, one person says guilt is not important. One says guilt is false. One says guilt is everybody else's problem. What do you believe? I don't know. I just want to go study psychology. 
well, one says the treatment is to free the id, weaken the superego, and allow you to just go crazy. One says we need to fix the environment. That's the problem. One says uh, we need to help, help you blossom and find that goodness in you and just let it come out. What do you believe? I don't know. I just want to go study psychology. In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I mean, this is the world we live in apart from God. And I don't mean to say there's no value in psychology. Sometimes they do a much better job, job drawing pictures of people. But just because someone knows how to draw a picture of your car doesn't mean they know how to fix it. Just something for us to really think about. This is lunacy. And Solomon rightly recognizes it and says, this is crazy. Under heaven, under the sun, this world is full of inconsistencies. And everyone just puts their head in the sand and accepts it and doesn't ask good questions. Solomon had all the money, all the time, and all the wisdom, and he asked all the questions, and he said, this is crazy. What is crooked can't be straightened. What is lacking can't be counted. And in wisdom, we get more angst. And the more I learn, the sadder I get. Should we pray and close now, or would you like something a little different? (laughs) I would, too. In chapter, uh, I think I'm behind. Did you move those along, Mark, for me? Thank you. There was that Kansas stuff. I got it now. I just didn't want to go too far. In chapter 12, verse 11, Solomon explains one of the uh, strategies for his book. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. You don't have to turn there. We're, we're going to reference it during. It's, it's, it's one of those key verses in the book, though. The words of the wise, so chapter 12, verse 11. You, you want to familiarize yourself with it. The words of the wise are like goads. That's like spurs, like a stick. You know how you'd move an animal along with a goad? You poke them. A kind of goad is a spur that goes on your boots. So the words of the wise are like goads. And like nails... Firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. So the book of Ecclesiastes has two kinds of literature. It has goads. Now, if someone were writing me and hitting me with the goads, I don't know if I would be caring where I go, but I know I'd be going somewhere. All right? Ah! It's driving me. And that's what all these passages are where he says, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, I looked at, I studied. Those are all goads designed. I I hope I goaded you this morning. I hope part of you is like just a little unsettled. Like I poked you. That's what the passage was about. And then the second thing is there are nails that firmly fix you. There are no nails in this passage, friends. We've got to go find a nail. Okay? You understand that? This passage is a goad, but it'll drive you off a cliff. For example, Ernest Hemingway said, Life's a dirty, dirty trick. A short journey from nothingness to nothingness. And then something that hit my Twitter feed this week. A man named Zach. Commemorating the seven-year anniversary of his father's death. He said, Dad... Seven years ago, you passed on. The joy and inspiration you brought to the world carries on in your legacy and in your family, friends, and fans you so loved. You lived to bring laughter and to help others. I'll be celebrating your memory today. Love you forever. 
Oh, yes, Zach's last name was Williams. That's Robin Williams. This is a man who had everything. And while I obviously didn't know him personally, it seems to me, he committed suicide if you don't know, movie star, funny, enjoyable, gregarious, you would have thought, top of the world. It seems he found emptiness and confusion at the end of his life. That's very sad to me. He looked around at life under the sun and said, this is vexation and sorrow. Such is the goad of a life closely examined. No nails in this passage. Shall we find one real quick and close? Wouldn't you like a nail this morning? Not just a goad? Let's find Jesus in that passage that we looked at earlier. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked for a sign. And he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. No sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he goes into this expression about Jonah, expressing that Jesus is greater than the prophet. And he finishes that little section saying, and listen, something greater than Jonah is here. And he doesn't break a, break a second, and he, goes to, and he just keeps talking. I just want you to see the something greater thing happened twice. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment. Remember her from earlier in 1 Kings 10? The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here, Jesus says. Jesus is greater than a prophet. Jesus is greater than a king. King Solomon was widely known for his wisdom, for his great works. This queen of Sheba heard his fame, traveled many miles to hear him. Praise the Lord. Remember this quote? Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king to execute justice and righteousness. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a little like a two-year journey through Isaiah? Justice and righteousness? This is the king. Now Solomon, who was the king of peace, Shalom, Solomon, ruled wisely in the city of of peace, Jerusalem. King Solomon is is a picture of the great king of peace. He prefigures Jesus. When some people asked Jesus for a sign to prove that he was special, Jesus responded, the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. She came to the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus is another Solomon. He is the great and wise king. He is much greater than Solomon. Jesus is the prince of peace who has made the needed peace for us with God. Jesus is the king who broke through heaven. He is God with us. Jesus is not under the sun. Praise the Lord. He is beyond transcendent. And we needed that peace, didn't we? Because of this problem of sin in the world, because it's no longer good, it's not good, because it's no longer perfect, the fall has occurred, because we have an unhappy business that we toil with, we needed Jesus to come and die for us, to reconcile us to God, to be our substitute on the cross, so that we could have peace with God. 
the shalom of Solomon, the shalom over Jerusalem, and the prince of peace. I invite the praise team back to the platform. We'll prepare for our last song. Just a very short final thought here. Thanks for enduring. I'm a couple minutes over. Doesn't matter. It's all meaningless. So... uh. I was listening to J.D. Greer last week, and he said something that I thought was helpful for this week. Um, we all say God won't give us anything that, more than we can handle, right? It's a common thing we say, God won't give us anything more than we can handle. That's true in a sense of our own spirituality. But can I share with you a slightly different perspective on that? God has given you way more than you can handle to drive you to him. You can't handle it. I saw Jack Nichols. Nichols. <laughs> God imposed this futility for the purpose that we would long for and hope in Him, not anything else or anyone else. Deep in the human heart, we know that life apart from God is meaningless. We also know that we want what we do to matter in some way. We also know the world is certainly jacked up. Why is it like this? God imposed a curse on the world in response to human rebellion with the purpose that this frustration would lead us to him, not to despair. Do you understand the difference? That is the point of the passage. The Holy Spirit inspired Ecclesiastes to convict us of our own meaninglessness in and of ourselves so that we would be made, quote, made wise unto salvation through Jesus Christ. Romans 8 tells us that we are groaning right along with all this craziness of the frustrated creation. That's what exactly what Ecclesiastes directs us to. But we are not consigned to live under the sun, as Solomon laments. We can live under the Son, Jesus, if we turn to God for salvation and remain in Christ every day with God's participation and involvement in our lives don't live under the s-o-s-u-n friends live under the s-o-n father may your word go deep into our hearts find root and grow a great harvest in jesus name amen